This week, we take a trip around the moon on the Apollo 13. And along the way, we ask, is there a role that Tom Hanks can't do? Just how dangerous is space exploration? And how would you feel about having your urine spattered throughout space? Houston, we have a problem on force-fed sci-fi. Hello, folks. Welcome back for a lovely and riveting experience on the force-fed sci-fi as we unpack Apollo 13. This lovely voice that you hear is the great and glorious, omnipresent, as always, Sean Michael Culp. And along the ride is... I am the command module commander, Chris Rupp. Oh, man. In control of the LEM. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the, well, the command module pilot gets left behind while the astronauts go down to the surface. So, yeah. Yes. All right. So, I'm going to geek out for a second. So, my favorite band is Jethro Tull. And they actually have a song where they talk about the LEM when Apollo 11 first landed. It's amazing. It's like for Jeffrey, Michael, and me. So, if you like acoustic and Ian Anderson's voice... It's off of the Benefit album. All right, that's enough of me fanboying about. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk for hours about JT. Anyway, yeah, thank you everybody for tuning in on this very special look. A bit of a departure from our normal mm -hmm. programming here on the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, but we're doing this in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. A historic scientific achievement for all mankind. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't want to talk about First Man so much today because that movie's a bit uh, overrated and uh, not that good of a movie. Instead, we selected Apollo 13. Yes, I, I think I've seen this. I haven't seen First Man. And from what you've how you've dragged it around the ground already, I feel like this is the superior of the two. Well, First Man is able to stand up on its own merits. Okay. And it's a good film, but by no means is it at Apollo 13 level. You yeah. know what I mean? It's because Ron Howard wasn't in the chair. <laughs> so let's break it down, Mr. Synopsis Man. All right. Take the audience on a journey. So during the Apollo program, we have the launch of Apollo 13. And prior to the launch of Apollo 13, there were two previous successful trips to the moon with Apollo 11 and 12. So by all measures, this should be a routine mission. The astronauts land on the moon and they come back to Earth safely. Although a routine test goes horribly wrong, and the craft that is holding the astronaut suddenly begins leaking oxygen and now puts the crew in peril. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the entire staff of NASA are frantically working to save the astronauts and return them safely to Earth. Sounds lovely. So if this weren't a historical event, that's a pretty good premise for a movie. Yeah, that's actually high speed. I'd watch that. Right? Yeah. And it's real life, folks. Like, this actually happened. You know, sometimes real life just works out in a perfect way that, yeah, feels a bit Hollywood, but you know what? Looking back on it, you think, yeah, that'd be a good movie. You know, that's Hollywood endings come from somewhere, and it's real life, man. Well, Osama bin Laden was killed, and then uh, we turned that into bin a movie what? pretty quick. Are you serious? What film? Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, I haven't seen that. What? I know. I'm sorry. I, I'm failing as a person in the military. It's on the list. Crazy. Yeah, a bit crazy. All right, so let's uh, debunk who is in this glorious film. Well, the movie was directed by Ron Howard. The man. Who previously to directing Apollo 13 directed uh, films like Splash, Cocoon. No, wait, he did Splash? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what? 
Seriously? That is wow. one of his IMDb credits, yes. That's hilarious. That's so unexpected. I never thought that he did Splash. So him and Tom Hanks, like, bromance has begun since the very beginning. Pretty much, it seems like. Since Mermaids. And then did uh, Willow after that. Um, Parenthood, which I've heard is good. I haven't gotten around to seeing that with, uh, I think, uh, Steve Martin and Mary Steenburgen's in that. Oh, oh, okay. And then directed uh, the uh, Backdraft, which I have mentioned on the show before. Mm-hmm. Haven't seen that either. Great uh, action film okay. with Chicago Firefighters. If you've got a couple hours to check that out, I do recommend that. Um, also written by William Broyles Jr. and Al Reinert, who this is actually William Broyles' first Hollywood film that he wrote based off of Jim Lovell's book, Lost Moon. Ah, oh, rock on. Which Jim Lovell was uh, the command mm-hmm. the command pilot for the Apollo 13 mission. So uh, also the music was scored by James Horner, the legendary Ooh. James Horner. Rest in peace. He's passed away for several years now. Uh, scored some films like uh, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Oh, legendary. Also did the score for Aliens. Oh my gosh. The Land Before Time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Glory. Oh, wow. Braveheart. So this guy's he was the man of the 80s. And Jumanji. Oh, hey. Yeah, so he he's odds are if he did a James Cameron film or if he did any type of like rousing adventure yeah. score and it was and John Williams wasn't available, James You'd Horner was him. your guy. Okay. And then who is in this film? Well, with Ron Howard, you get Tom Hanks. Yes, the uh Always. the legendary Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. And then what well, we got Bill Pax. Bill Paxton. Rest in peace, man. Yeah, we miss you, Bill Paxton. We also have the Baconator. Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon, baby. Se- six degrees to Kevin Bacon. Which... Oh, yeah. <laughs> the 90s, man. And then we have uh, the glorious uh, Gary Sinise. Yes. And the 90s were great to that man. Absolutely. And then we have, the, oh, the also legendary Ed Harris. Yes, I... Sporting a lovely toupee. <laughs> Full disclosure, film. Ed Harris... Love the man. He's great. I will see mm-hmm. him in just about anything that he's in. Yeah. He could be like a tomato soup salesman, and I'll probably see that movie. He'd see him sell tomato soups. Well, why not? He could pull off just about any type of role, in my opinion. You know, that's fine. I'd listen to Morgan Fe- Freeman read me a science book. So, I mean, <laughs> each to their own. So, here is the process of precipitation. <laughs> First, we have evaporation. <laughs> and then we have condensation. And then it falls down in glorious little raindrops <laughs> back down on the earth to begin the process all over again. Thank you, Morgan. It was a pleasure having you on the show. You're welcome. That'll be $300, please. <laughs> uh, you know, actually, that reminds me of the Lego movie. So that's my non-sci-fi movie recommendation of the week. If you want a kick-butt voice film, like, it's awesome. And you like Legos and Morgan Freeman. Check out the Lego movie. He you know plays what? this wizard that's incredible. You know what? I will second that. I love that film. Also, we are glossing over uh, Kathleen Quinlan as Mar- Marilyn Lovell in this movie. Yes. Yes. She was great. Yes. Absolutely. But did you look up the other some other casting notes, actors who passed on roles? No. So it turns out Brad Pitt was offered the role of um, Jack Swigert. Ah. And he passed and it went to Kevin Bacon. You know, I could see him as Jack Swagger, that rambunctious man whore of a dude. 
that just wants to get up in space, a hotshot soon-to-be pilot. Yeah. yeah. I also saw that John Travolta was originally offered the role of Jim Lovell, and no. he passed on it. Oh, no. thank God. I don't want to see John Actually, Travolta. Actually, not, no. No. not the first time that John Travolta has passed on a role that Tom Hanks eventually took. He John Travolta originally passed on Forrest Gump, and it went to Tom Hanks. Well, that was a good thing, because Forrest Gump would have been very flamboyant. So we're, we're very happy that that didn't have no offense to you, Jim, John Travolta. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I get why, because, you know, Pulp Fiction. So they're like, hey, he's back. But thank gosh. So who else? Uh, Did anyone else pass on any you know what? fun roles? Since it is a Ron Howard film, of course it has his brother Clint Howard in yes! it. Yes. Yes. He's like in every freaking film. Yes. I was watching this with my uh, girlfriend. She's like, who's that bald guy? <laughs> I'm like, so that that's is Ron, Ron Howard's, Howard's brother, man. That is Ron Howard's less talented brother. Every film. I love it, man. He just, but he casts him in the perfect role every single time. And he always zooms up on his face. I'm like, yeah, this is a great close up movie. Oh, it's Ron amazing. Howard gets in everyone's face. <laughs> no personal space bubbles. So let's talk about the development Ooh. of the film. So, movie was made on a budget of $52 million. Mm-hmm. And in 2019 money, that's a, that is roughly $86 million. So, with an all-star cast like this and decent visual effects and production design, I feel like this is a pretty modest budget for the time. For the time? You think so? Yeah. Okay. I mean, normally, if this I think if this movie was made in, say, like 2005, I think the budget would easily be million. $150 million. Especially modern. Just because it could be. Yes. Let's just throw all the money at the special effects. But- it held up. Yeah. And it really, you they used sets and everything, so I liked it. For the You didn't feel the budget at all. They didn't use any footage from the original Apollo 13 mission. None? Not even like in the when they landed or anything? No. All that was reshot? All that was reshot. Oh, that's, wow, crikey, man. Crikey. Every spacecraft had to be reconstructed, and mission control had to be reconstructed, too. Oh, that's dope. They actually brought in well, I don't... the original flight controllers from Houston to take a look at the set. Mm-hmm. And they were so impressed. Some of them actually got like confused at like, hey, am I back in Houston like <laughs> messing around? I, I read a story that one of them was walking down a hallway to go to an elevator that he would take out of the Houston mission control to go home. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, wow. Kudos to Ron Howard for creating a... Like look alike. Yeah, they, even he the, took time. Even the uh, USS Iwo Jima had to be replicated using uh, its sister ship, the USS New Orleans. Well, that's but see, that's how you know it's a good film because they take that time for the craft to actually make real good sets that mimic. I mean, you know, it's going to be perfect. But this is also a docudrama, so it's kind of like a documentary of what happened. So if it was kind of shabangled, people would probably be like, "That's not real." That's my word of the week: shabangled. <laughs> Well, it's important too that um that you bring that sense of of care to a movie like this because it, it's based on a true story, so it's going to carry that stigma of being based on real events, and people are going to think, oh, well, it's Hollywood up for it, and actually, no, it isn't. I mean, if you dig a little deeper into the Apollo thirteen mission, you you you'll find out that the events in the film unfolded exactly the way they did during the real mission. Yeah, they stuck pretty close to everything that happened even the dialogue was pretty much line for line of what they actually said in the cockpit yeah just not for who said the lines but yeah some things were given to other characters and actors but i mean it's fine i mean nobody's gonna nitpick that no unless you get some online trolls but (laughs) that'll be discussed later (laughs) 
So I think it's also it's important to just give a quick rundown and brief history of the Apollo program itself. Yes. So the the original program ran from 1961 to 1972. So it was uh, preceded by Project Mercury and Project Gemini, which we don't have time to get into those uh, programs today. It's just we don't have time, and we're just talking about Apollo. But what space names? You know, Gemini <laughs> and Mercury. Like, who thought of these names? I like Apollo. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. That's rad. Those originally conceived when um, President John Kennedy addressed Congress in 1961, and later the program was later dedicated to him following his assassination. Because a lot of people knew that this was his challenge to the nation of getting mm-hmm. a man to the moon and returning him safely to Earth, and. Uh, and of course, I mean, it had the ulterior motive of bankrupting the Russians, which it did, but I mean... It worked. But the Russians, I think, stopped launching space missions either in the mid-60s, way before Apollo really took off, so to speak. It's hard to compete with the United States when we just have a surplus of resources. Space travel is expensive. Like, yes. If you look at the rocket, the Saturn V rocket, it is still the biggest and fastest like vehicle period that anyone's ever built. Of course, it's going to take money. (laughs) (laughs) Taxpayer dollars for a good cause. Here's how a typical um, mission profile goes during an Apollo mission, for example. So we have the launch with the Saturn V rocket. Then we get our translunar injection to break Earth orbit. So that's, uh, that's the scene where like, get ready for a little jolt, fellas. And then boom, it goes Fast, because it's supposed to break Earth orbit and get out into space. Translunar injection. There's all kinds of great names that they have for these <laughs> stages. I'm not going to lie. Then there's uh, transposition and docking. Where what? The, yeah, it's where the command module um, leaves the, the rocket, turns around, and it pulls out the lunar module. You have extraction of the lunar module. Lunar orbit insertion, where the lunar module is orbiting the moon, obviously. Then you have descent orbit insertion, where... You're obviously going to land on the moon. You have your power descent where you actually land. Your uh, extra uh, vehicular activities. I I think it's actually exterior vehicular activities on the moon where you collect your samples and you Mm -hmm. do your experiments and then you rest. You have your lunar ascent and rendezvous. Then you have trans-Earth injection. Oh, my gosh. Because when you're raking lunar orbit and you're going back to Earth now. It's going to be heavier, too. Yeah, and then you jettison and you drop down in the ocean. Boom. That just sounds like a nice weekend. Yeah, so on... (laughs) Nice well, party. It, it takes longer than a weekend, <laughs> yeah, Sean. I know. Oh, wow. That's a busy week, man. With a lot of trans and docking and injections and insertion. It takes. <laughs> it would take longer than that. Because, Who made these freaking names, man? Because when the astronauts actually landed after Apollo 1, they had to keep them in quarantine for 14 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it was Apollo 11 because um, they thought they would bring back diseases yeah. from the lunar surface not realizing that there's no air and space is a vacuum so nothing can live or exist out there. <laughs> do they still do that? No, they don't do that anymore. They don't anymore. do that anymore? Okay. So that would just be so ironic. Well, it doesn't make sense to do it now considering no. that nothing lives in space. Yeah, exactly. So here's also a quick summary of the Apollo missions. Mm-hmm. So we have... Apollo 1. Apollo 1. This is the infamous Apollo test 1. of Apollo 1 where astronauts Gus Grissom... Ed White and Roger Chaffee were killed mm-hmm. when a fire um, uh, started in the cockpit and killed them all and they couldn't get out, which was a very unfortunate accident at the time. Yeah. How how much heavy was the door? It was uh, like 10, there was something like 10,000 pounds of pressure on the hatch that they that they weren't able to open from the outside. Yeah. That's just nuts. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was I think those were uh, 
they were among the contingent, I think, of about eight astronauts who died during space test missions. Yeah, all the way up from, I think, 64. And this is a point I think we should emphasize, is that a lot of people dedicated their lives and time and effort to building the Apollo, Mercury, and Gemini program. So their sacrifices cannot be stated enough. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so after the disaster of Apollo 1, Apollo 2 was immediately canceled. All the way up to like 7, right? There were no, they, yeah. there were no manned missions until Apollo 7. So this was, mm-hmm. Apollo 7 was the one that eventually carried out Apollo 1's original mission of low Earth orbit. And then Apollo 8, this is where we get the famous um, Earthrise photo where it's a very, it's a now iconic photo of the Earth just breaking the lunar plane and you see it out of the out of the window of Apollo 8. And this is actually one of the missions that Jim Lovell flew on for the Apollo mission. This was his first yeah. one. The man. He would end up serving uh, his backup crew on Apollo 11 as well. Yeah, he's a seasoned vet if you look at like his career achievements. Yeah. That man knew space. Didn't he have the record for a while? Yeah, at the time he retired after Apollo 13, he had the most time in space of any astronaut. And I think he held that record for several years. That's awesome. And then we get Apollo 9, uh, which tested propulsion and docking systems, as well as the life support systems of the command module and lunar modules. Mm-hmm. Apollo 10 was a dress rehearsal for the eventual moon landing. Well, yeah, as you, like you talk about the missions, it's basically all a setup for Apollo 11. Yeah, each mission, each mission has a mandate. Mm-hmm. There are certain objectives they have to accomplish, and if those objectives are accomplished then they can proceed to the next one and make sure that they get to the moon. And Apollo 11, that's where we get the moon landing with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And we should mention uh, command module pilot Michael Collins. who yeah, He's always forgotten. Yeah, the mission would not be possible without Michael Collins because how are Buzz and Neil going to get back? Exactly. Apollo 12 was the second moon landing. Ooh. Yeah, so already we've got two moon landings. Woo! Apollo 13 was intended to be a moon landing, but... Uh, Successful failure. Yeah, coined by uh, Jim Lovell, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Apollo 14 eventually finished Apollo 13's original mission, and this is where we get the first color TV images from the lunar surface. Yeah, and this and is... You, and you found this out, too, about Apollo 14. Yeah, Shepard actually hit two golf balls. Uh, so, like, he went out there and just, like, he made a makeshift club and then took two hits. One, he said, went for miles and miles, and there was a rumor for a while. The ball's just like floating around in space, but it actually only went like 400 yards. But he claimed it went for miles and miles. Of course he did, because no one on the moon is going to dispute that. Who's going to dispute that? <laughs> no one else is on the moon to dispute, <laughs> dispute Until that. Until you get a telescope and see where the ball's at. Excuse Somebody me, just Shepherd. has the most powerful telescope in the universe and like, hey, <laughs> what's still that on the thing? It's <laughs> still on the moon. And this is actually, because they didn't have the rover, I think that was the next mission that they brought it up. Because this one, Shepard and the other guy, who I'm blanking on his name, they tried walking across a crater, and they almost made it. They were like 30 meters from getting to, like, walking across an entire crater, but they were tired, so they had to go back due to oxygen. So that's why they made the rover, so they could travel all over the moon with a little bit ease, not having to worry about running about of oxygen. So that was Apollo 15, and then Apollo 16 and 17 both successfully made lunar landings, and Mm -hmm. then... The program was canceled after Apollo 17. Yeah. They had some missions, I believe. They had enough equipment all the way up to Apollo 20. That's why I read online. But Well, a lot of the equipment was then used for the um, the Skylab mm-hmm. program as well as the International Space Station. 
So it was still put to good use. Yeah, but there have been no returns to the moon. No. Which I actually do have an interesting tidbit about the International Space Station. My uh, okay. My fourth grade teacher, her father, uh, astronaut uh, Robert Cabana, was uh, part of the uh, astronaut crew that brought up the first American piece of the International Space Station. Oh, rock on. And now he's currently serving as the director of the Kennedy Space Center. Talk about a nice job. So uh, astronaut Bob Cabana, if you happen to be <laughs> listening to the show, uh, give you a shout out. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing what you did. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How rad is that? Do you get tickets to NASA? No. No. I think I still have like his autograph picture from uh, that mission that he uh, took. Uh, the piece was the Unity up in the space, and that met with the uh, the Russian piece, uh, Zarya. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. Well, rock on. <laughs> you know, I do want to. I want to ask you this though. Do you think a return to um, space exploration is possible? I think so. Why wouldn't it be? Like, I would love to go back to the moon, but why haven't we, Chris? Why haven't we got, is it because aliens? I think it's just, it's too expensive. Yeah, it probably is aliens. Well, <laughs> well, Lovell has that great line in the movie too, when the congressman asks him like, you know, what's the point of going to the moon? Like imagine if Christopher Columbus returned from the new world and no one came after him. Yeah. Like exploration and discovery are so important to humanity, period. Yeah, and why not build a colony? Isn't that what Newt Gingrich wanted? (laughs) (laughs) Colonize the moon! No, I think definitely, I think space exploration is huge. I'm like such a big proponent of pushing space exploration, because why not? Why not travel the galaxy and see what we can do? That's like what Star Trek's all about. Like, I'm down. Did you ever have aspirations to be an astronaut as a child? I did. I really wanted to be one for a while, and then I thought, because my eyes, like, I needed glasses a little bit later, so I thought because I needed glasses, I couldn't be an astronaut. I mean, the first uh, group of astronauts they pulled were uh, were test pilots and yeah. Air Force pilots, and you need 20-20 vision to do that. I was like, oh, I'm not a pilot. And then I realized, like, what it took to be an astronaut. I'm like, oh, oh that's a lot of work. So that's why when I saw the colonized Mars... How, like, anyone could apply. I was like, ooh, I'll jump on that one-way trip if I hit, like, 45 and I got no aspirations in life. (laughs) But, yeah, I I wanted to be one. How about you? You know, I think I did when I was a child. Yeah. And then, you know, we see so many space films that make it seem so easy. But it's not. Yeah, I mean, we even have a a movie from Michael Bay where oil drillers went to be astronauts, which is just not plausible. Right. And actually, but we just looked that up. For being an astronaut, I think you have a 3.2% chance of dying by going into space. So just picking up the career, you have a 96.8% chance of survival, which isn't bad. That's an A. Well, I think those- I'll take that. I think the tragedies of the Challenger and the Columbia, Mm -hmm. I think that really was off-putting to a lot of people towards the space program in general. Well, we shut down. After the Columbia, right? We yeah. Gr- you, we didn't go up for a while. And I remember watching that. I think I was 13 or 14 when that happened. Same. I mean, initially, the breaking news was that uh, NASA had lost signal with Columbia, and then footage started coming out of the ship breaking apart, and it was yeah. just, it was heartbreaking to watch as a kid, because this was supposed to be like, they were taking up pieces from the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. It's like, so now what? what? Now what does this mean? Yeah. What are we going to do? And Challenger, I mean- that was, I think, the first time a civilian was going up yeah. in the astronaut program, and I, the nation was watching. Mm-hmm. But the Challenger never should have went up in the first place because it was below freezing the mm-hmm. night before in Cape Kennedy. 
And that caused the O-rings to fail on the booster rockets, and unfortunately it led to that crew being killed. What do they say? With, like, success and, like, building up to perfection, there is a cost for achieving, like, whatever mission you want. Yeah. So there is always a cost, unfortunately, at the lives of others. But my mom, though, still, like, if you ask her, like, about the Challenger, it's like everyone from the 80s can remember that. Like, people that were born pre, like, 80. Because everybody was watching it. Well, it's kind of like our generation with September 11th. Like, we'll tell you exactly where we were, what we were doing. Because we were like, oh, this was a huge moment in our time. Not to, uh, solen the mood. (laughs) (laughs) That's enough of the heaviness for now. (laughs) This week on Force Fed Sci-Fi, we talk about depressing topics. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But being that this movie is based on a true story, Sean, you, um... You mentioned some differences that took place between what really happened during the mission and what the film kind of dramatized. So what were some things that you found? I found that the line, Houston, we have a problem, is not actually true. They said it was, uh, Houston, we've had a problem. And then Houston didn't even hear it. They're like, go. And then Novell. Novell? What the frick is that guy? Lovell? Lovell. I'm bad with names. You watched the movie, right? Three times. (laughs) But see, I associate Tom Hanks. Like, I don't see them as actors. Anyways, but he actually said, uh, Houston, we've had a problem. But then the movie changed it to Houston, we have a problem. Because dramatic. Yeah, and we listened to that audio, like mm-hmm. the actual audio yeah. from that. And uh, surprisingly, Houston and the astronauts on board was super, super calm. Super calm. In the film, when you watch it, they're like hectic. People are banging around the ship. But no, they were like super chill. They, they were trained professionals, man. Yeah. Because I feel like if you're in space, you got to keep it cool. And then also, um, failure is not an option. That's actually just a Hollywood movie line. Although I did see that Gene Krantz now uses that as like part of his book tour. Well, hey, man, if you can bank on it bank and use it as a motivational speaker, because he was the man. Well, that line doesn't feel out of place for the movie, though. No. It, well, it's perfect. It's a Hollywood movie, and it just fits right in. And that's like a phrase that people like say all the time now. Failure is not an option. I think Gene Krantz, his portrayal in the film, he definitely serves as kind of this liaison between the bureaucratic, mm-hmm. you know, leaders of NASA and the astronauts. Yes, he has to. Once the the craft suffers that catastrophic uh, catastrophic failure, it is no longer about landing them on the moon. Yes, it's about getting them safely back to Earth. Full stop. Right there. They're talking about like, well, how do we turn the craft around? How do we filter out the carbon dioxide? His sole purpose from then on out is like, I don't care how we do it. I want them safely back yeah. on Earth. So let's figure out a way to do it. He was super grounded throughout the film. He he was. He was the driving factor. I feel like he was just corralling a bunch of like children that were like freaking out. He's like, no, stay in line. This is what we're doing. And then everyone kind of rallied under him. What else was different? Well, we talked about off air. There was like two different teams and there were two different leads throughout that like pioneered the team. Like Gene, the other guy's last name was Looney. And apparently he was like very important, pivotal after the accident, like keeping everyone calm and driving force. But they apparently the night team, they actually were super pivotal. That's a team that I think uh, Ken, Gary Sinise's character in the film, he worked really hand in hand with those guys and bringing them back. You know, I'm glad you brought up Gary Sinise's yes. character, Ken Mattingly, because he actually is the owner of my lens flare for Apollo 13. He's the owner of your lens flare? Okay, so during the liftoff scene, 
the rest of the press and all the spectators, they have to be about three miles away from the Saturn V rocket. Okay. Because if something were to fail on the launch pad and the rocket were to blow up, its blast radius would be equivalent to that of a nuclear bomb. So about three miles. Mm -hmm. So they're all three miles away, and yet Ken Mattingly is about a half mile away in his little Corvette watching the ship go off. How is he able to get inside <laughs> the perimeter and yet no one else can't? Does he have like special NASA Jedi powers like let me in? It's the Corvette, man. Speaking of Corvettes, my lens flare was Tom Hanks driving. Like he literally, it's like mid-scene, pulls in, cuts off two guys with the shiny red Corvette. I was like, what the heck? Immediately. Like, well, in the my first whole question step, too is like, like you're government play. employees. How can you afford yeah, these cars? My thoughts exactly. I'm like, what what are you paying these astronauts? Like millions of dollars? What? And there's even if they do, there's no reason to drive like that freaking no. level. No reason. My whole thing like if I have a Corvette, like that's staying in the garage and that's only being driven like once a week if it's lucky. Not in LA traffic or wherever the heck they because they filmed in Houston. LA. Houston. Yeah, Houston. There is no way I would drive a Corvette in LA traffic. No. Not even in Houston traffic. No. I'm good. Not in any traffic. No. Maybe out in the boonies. That stays in the garage and it's now a dis a display item. Hey, look at my Corvette. I don't drive. Like, how many miles does it have on it? 17? That's right. I bring my daughter's boyfriend down to see it to just make him know who's boss. That's right. <laughs> don't screw with my daughter. Because there's nothing more intimidating than a Corvette in a garage that you don't drive. Right next to the shotgun up on the stand. Oh, gosh. What other? Do you want to talk about, uh, now that we've talked about the lens flares, the movie bits and performances and all that, how'd you think of- Let's uh, get into the meat and potatoes, shall we? The meat and potatoes. So obviously Tom Hanks is in this. Yes. Uh, we did ask, but can he not do any other he, role? He, uh, <laughs> there isn't a role in the world that Tom Hanks can't perform, in my opinion. He can't. And I forgot how good 90s Tom Hanks, not that he's bad actor now or anything, but it's like there's a difference, I think, in 90s Tom Hanks and like 2010 Tom Hanks. Like this film was just vintage, like Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. I loved his dialogue, everything about him. It reminded me of like Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, well, it's Saving Private Ryan, another movie from the '90s. He also did a Castaway. Yes, can't uh, can't film. go over that one. Yeah. So yeah, the '90s were great. Great to Tom, to Tom Hanks. Hanks. He won two Oscars. He's still great. I mean, yeah. Oh, he's incredible. He's gonna be Mr. Rogers, right? Yeah, he's uh, yeah. Which I think he will win another Oscar for that. I hope so, man. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one, big time. <laughs> but let's not also not gloss over how good the '90s were to Gary Sinise. Oh my gosh! Yeah, fresh off of the Oscar nod for Forrest Gump, that he should have probably. Won. I don't know who else was nominated though that year. Uh, for supporting. I, I don't know either. I think that was 1994, so that may have been Tommy Lee Jones and The Fugitive. Ooh, but um, still, I don't. He was great in Forrest Gump. And I love Gary Sinise. Well, in the 90s, he also was in Of Mice and Men. Yeah. Oh, so I've seen. He with, was uh, John great. Malkovich mm -hmm. as uh, Lenny. He was in the, the miniseries adaptation of The Stand, the Stephen King novel. No way. Yeah. It was also starred in The Quick and the Dead, the Sam Raimi Western film. Mm -hmm. uh, did Ransom with Mel Gibson. Oh. No, a very intense film. And then uh, had a kind of like a cameo role in The Green Mile, which yes. uh, that movie will just. Uh, amazing and just make you cry your eyes dude, out dude i weep <laughs> whenever i see it, it just it's amazing and did you know that he's in marvel yes he's yes, a, he's he a, is he's the a voice he is the voice yeah in the uh which film is that the it's winter soldier Winters he plays the uh, the narrator during the captain america exhibit yeah even he got in on it because i remember watching the film going is 
Is that Gary Sinise? Well, he's heavily involved in the um, in the veterans community. Yes, he's he's parlayed his uh, character in Forrest Gump into a, a blues band. He calls it the Lieutenant Dan Band. <laughs> but I mean, it's it, his portrayal of Ken Mattingly is great in this movie and there's favorite character yeah one of my favorites if mattingly wasn't grounded for the apollo 13 mission he wouldn't have been able to be on the ground helping the flight crew figure out a startup sequence for re-entry well it's just it he was so pivotal in that in their return home so it like made me think while i was watching it what if he was in space like what would happen i wonder is he that genius that he would have thought it up himself well it may have been um jack swagger in the in the simulator trying to think of a startup sequence right so i mean it just worked out perfectly despite him falsely i guess diagnosed as getting the german measles and i think the the movie did dramatize the um I guess kind of like the derision that they were like putting on Jack Swigert. Yeah. Because you don't get to be a NASA astronaut if you are not qualified for it. No. Like if there's any like question in the selection process and anybody's going like, well, you're not getting picked. No, exactly. There was no question about Jack Swigert and his capabilities for the mission. And it it didn't happen two days before the launch. It happened months ahead of time. Exactly. Well, just like with the launch pad being moved in the film, they were like, oh, two days, they're going to move the launch pad over. It's like, no, that was moved, I think, December 15th. And it was like 69. So it was like four months prior to the launch. But say la vie, man. Well, let's also talk about Kathleen Quinlan a bit, who plays uh, Marilyn Lovell. Great great performance i would i don't want that nasa bs <laughs> tell me where my husband is yeah i love that line man she kind of serves as um the opposite of um ed harris's gene Kranz, mm-hmm. where Kranz is worried about all of the men and getting them back marilyn is just worried about her husband the that's whole it. time she's on pins and needles that's it and the scene with her where she's sitting in her bedroom just crying when Apollo 13 is going around the moon and they lose signal. That shot of her just weeping in her bedroom is just so haunting. Well, it got her the Oscar nod. <laughs> but no, she was great. Her conflict with her daughter was played out so well. Mm-hmm. I loved every scene she was in. It was great performances throughout. Did you like the media portrayal when like they're all waiting for like the ship to make it past the blackout? Everyone's just like... It's real time. They I don't felt know the what media portrayal was spot on because they did not care about this flight no, at all. No, any details they could get, they just threw out there. It's And actually, the broadcast during the film, they didn't actually show it. Because during the movie, there's like, I guess that's a NASA thing. During the 70s, when they were launching the Apollo missions, they would give kind of like a tour of the ship and like what's going on. And so I guess by 13... They didn't broadcast it on national television because I guess the public thought it was no big deal. Astronauts flying to the moon. There's nothing routine about space what? travel. It's routine, yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? If it's I so, would watch that. If it's so routine, why don't you do it? Dude, I used to watch the freaking all of those missions. Like, I would just turn on TV and watch uh, spaceships take off and land. I'm like, this is so awesome. But hey, I guess that's the 70s for you, man. They're just null to it. And then it's rounded out, the cast is rounded out by uh, Kevin Bacon yes. and Bill Paxton. Great performances from those guys. I mean, mm-hmm. literally any one of the actors in this movie could be the lead of their own movie. Mm-hmm. And it was big for Kevin Bacon. I don't know if this was his breakout role or not. No, he had But broke, he looked pretty young. He had broken, well, he broke out with Footloose. That's right. In the 80s. And I, I never saw it. My feet aren't that loose, man. Good a little uh, 80s time capsule if you have the time to watch it. <laughs> And feel like dancing to Kenny Loggins songs. Right. Yeah. Those guys were great. 
I would say the only thing I didn't like was his, like, I guess the portrayal of him kind of as, like, the underdog and unappreciated yeah. in the crew. Outside of that, it was great. Great moments. You talked about how you liked when the O2 tank explodes and Tom Hanks looks out the window and sees, like, Yeah, the, that, the music that plays in that scene by James Horner is just... Outstanding. It immediately sets the, the mood for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. But there's also this great shot of... Um, of Gene Kranz as he hear it as he hears it come over the radio, what Lovell's describing to him, and it's this, uh, it's this now it's the same like camera movement that Steven Spielberg pioneered, where you you pan out with the camera, but you zoom in real quick. Yeah, like if you if you've watched Jaws, you know the move mm-hmm. I'm talking about. He does the exact same move on Gene Kranz. It's almost like oh, God, like it's this shot of sudden realization where Gene Kranz just like oh crap. <laughs> yeah, there are some great moments. There were also some not so great moments, and we yes. have for you the return of one of our favorite segments on the show. We have for you this, this week, week in Toxic, Toxic Fandom. Fandom. So, Sean, what did you find? So, there is a large, large list. What do you call them? We'll call these people online. Uh, we call them pedants. <laughs> So there's a couple that I talked about, like um, the launch pad not being moved over there two days before the launch. The big one that I think we talked about was there's a cheeseburger advertisement from McDonald's. The advertisement in the film says you could get a cheeseburger meal for $2.50. But someone online researched back how much cheeseburgers cost in 1970, in April 13th, 1970. I guess cheeseburgers cost 33 cents. And hamburgers cost twenty cents, and then fries cost three dollars and thirty-three or uh, thirty-three cents. So with the total of everything, they're like the meal should have only been a dollar twelve, not two dollars and fifty cents. So in a movie about <laughs> space travel, somebody took the time to calculate, and it's such a quick scene, like it's so fast. They calculated it, man. So yeah, like in a movie about space travel, someone took the time. To figure out how much a quarter pounder with cheese and an order of fries would have cost. It's not two ninety nine. It's a dollar twelve. Oh my god! Because soft drinks only twenty cents, Chris, and burgers thirty three. What else? Oh, there is a big. So in the movie, the daughter is like huge into the Beatles. They had like a scene where the Beatles, I guess, were breaking up or whatever. And so this toxic fan said that the last album, Let It Be, I think they they actually showed a picture of her throwing it. And the album didn't actually come out when the film was out, Chris. Aww. It came out May 6, 1970, not April 6. So in addition- Ron Howard, get your details straight, man. Continuity. So in addition to burger pedants, we now have <laughs> Beatles pedants. That's nuts. Congratulations. <laughs> Those are my two favorites. Oh, wow. So, But this wouldn't be a science fiction podcast if we didn't discuss one of the conspiracy theories that are- talked about during the Apollo missions. And one of the big ones is, did Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong see a UFO during their flight in space? Yes, they did. They did not. Yes, they did. They did not. Yes, they They, did. No, they did not. And Buzz (laughs) Aldrin has repeatedly refuted that story. I'm sure with a great grand gesture from the government, a deposit of $5 million in his bank account. So the story goes... Chris, would you deny aliens for $10 million? Anyway, <laughs> during the Apollo 11 flight, Buzz Aldrin saw a curious object reflecting out in space. Aliens. Uh, what? Oh, keep going. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you, Sean. So and they asked Houston where an earlier stage of the rocket was jettisoned. 
and Houston confirmed that it was the third stage that separated from the Saturn V rocket, and it was 6,000 nautical miles away. Now, given that space is a vacuum and there's sunlight literally everywhere, you can see pretty far out into space, so it is plausible that all Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong saw was that third stage from the Saturn V rocket. However, the Daily Star, which is a United Kingdom tabloid, they printed a story with his comments that Aldrin saw a UFO. Now, he did a documentary in 2006 with similar contact comments, but his comments in this report were taken out of context. Okay. So personally, I have to side with Buzz Aldrin on this one that he did not see a UFO. So I'm going to say he might have seen a UFO. <laughs> okay. Because the, that's a good argument. The record speaks for itself. And himself, Armstrong, and Collins are the only people who can verify this story. So here's a cool, because I just thought of this. So the people that say the moon landing were fake, are they the same people that say he saw an alien? Because if they believe that the moon landing were fraud, then how could he have seen an alien if he wasn't in... If you believe that the moon landing was fake, then yeah. you have then by yeah. proxy you have to buy into all the other conspiracies, but quote I mean, unquote. Th there's no logic to it. Because if they were in the Hollywood studio, then why would you say, you know? I'm sorry, I find these whole conspiracies <laughs> about how we didn't land on the moon and blah blah blah. I find them to be complete garbage. <laughs> I mean the earth isn't flat. I don't want to get started on that <laughs> one. Because I would just yell for about the next twenty minutes. <laughs> but yes, the moon landing absolutely, absolutely did happen. It did. And anybody who says it didn't happen, you're now doing a disservice to the men and women who dedicated their lives <laughs> and efforts to get us on the moon. You're discrediting fifty years of scientific exploration and discovery by saying it didn't happen. But I do have to say, man, if you've seen the videos of like the Lem relaunching like back up to the ship it does look kind of cheesy <laughs> like the camera that they take from the rover when they blast back up to reconnect i mean i saw that and i rewound i'm like what what you this can, is what it come on you can look at a really? telescope right now and you can see I know. bits of the lunar module up there you can see the flags up there yes you can see objects that have been left behind on the lunar surface with just a telescope you can so, even see the golf balls <laughs> yeah if you have a powerful <laughs> enough telescope you can find those so i mean I get that it looks kind of cheesy, but hey, man, we've never been in space like that. How do you know? I'm willing to side with the astronauts on this. Yeah. If you disagree with Chris, add him. Add us. But, I don't but, care. But Chris... <laughs> <laughs> All right, UFO man. All right, so now let's talk about the film that you drag around, First Man <laughs> versus Apollo 13. So I've never seen First Man, so okay. I'm just going to go off of your review. So First Man is about the story of Neil Armstrong, and obviously he was the first man to walk on the moon. Okay. Now I think the problem with this movie versus Apollo 13 is that we know how First Man is going to end. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless the movie was made by T Quentin Tarantino, an alien suddenly burst out from a moon rock and behead Neil Armstrong and murder <laughs> Buzz Aldrin in the in the module. <laughs> Nothing was going to change the fact that Armstrong was going to walk on the moon. So it's like Titanic. Yeah, we know how it's going to end. The ship's going to break up and people are going to die and the ship's going to sink in the ocean. That's just how it goes. But the film First Man didn't captivate you emotionally and make you think something else was going to happen? No, because <laughs> what else was going to happen? <laughs> right. Maybe an alien appears. I think the, <clears throat> I think First Man was trying to emphasize the point of just how dangerous yeah. space travel was at the time because it uh, one of the prominent scenes is 
the death of the Apollo 1 astronauts mm-hmm. and I don't know it just didn't have the same emotional connectivity that that Apollo 13 had because Apollo 13 is a bit of a lesser known story yeah in the annals of space travel I think well didn't they say that people initially and pre-testing didn't like the film because they're like oh it's too hollywood man and yeah. then they had to tell them no this was a real event man what are you guys saying <laughs> no it, you connect with all the characters in some way mm-hmm. i mean you connect with lovell who who he loses his ambition to mm-hmm. get to the moon and he just wants to go home when he asks yeah. the crew like gentlemen what are your intentions that's a great scene so many great scenes in this movie i love the arguing scene when he's like, we just can argue, and then we'll be 10 minutes, and then we'll be right back to where we first started. I'm like, yeah. Tom Hanks, you are the man. Oh, I love it when Bill Paxton has to calm down. Kevin Bacon's like, hey, this thing's going to get you home. Yes. After he's like hitting it and bounces his head off the ceiling or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What would you call that in the spacecraft? I don't know if you would call it a ceiling because there's no gravity. Yeah. That is to happen, though, so frequently. People just like bashing This is what Sean and I talk about in our downtime. What do you call that <laughs> if there's no gravity? I did like Bill Paxton. He was kind of like a little toy, a tool to all these guys, or a troll. Like when they turn the switch during the broadcast and he hits the wall. Like the whole time, he's just goofing off. Although I do have to appreciate his choice of music by going with Spirit yes. of the Sky. Yes. Initially, we wanted Space Odyssey 2000, 2001. But because I heard them say that, I'm like, ooh, Chris would love that track. No. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be totally something you would do. No, I would go with Spirit in the Sky. Or if I were going into space, I'd want the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. <laughs> right. Have to go with that. Are you kidding? I wonder how many astronauts go into space listening to that nowadays. That's got to be, oh, man. Oh, you know trope. somebody is blasting off listening totally. to um, Blue Suede's Hooked on a Feeling. It has to be. Uh, they just changed my perspective in life. <laughs> I mean, there's so many great scenes. Like the the liftoff scene is mm-hmm. is so great. I mean, anybody who like doesn't get chills watching it, or if you've got surround sound, you are turning it up for that scene. I love when they uh, springboard around the moon. That's such a cool scene because you get to see like Ron Howard doing his thing where they show the moon. And it looks real. Mm-hmm. Like it's incredible the visual effects on this thing. Those whole like, scenes, wow, those whole scenes in the spacecraft are great because they actually yeah. filmed that on. I think it's the the KC one thirty five. They call mm-hmm. it the vomit comet. Yeah, so it flies in this parabolic arc that goes up. I think like thirty thousand feet or whatever, and then it goes right back down to like twelve thousand feet. So you only get about like twenty seconds of filming. Yeah, but it's crazy. They think they flew something like over six hundred parabolic arcs just to get the, that footage in the in the spacecraft. That's what I was thinking while watching it. I'm like, wow, the amount of work that they went in to just get these scenes is just incredible, man. They could have like done cables and had it been cheesy, but it pays off. Cause as did. a kid, I thought they actually went into space, yeah, like flipping around. It's it was so real. <laughs> I loved it. I loved all the scenes when the accident happens. Like the music, the score just encompasses you. You start getting like gripping the chair, white knuckling. Well, that's like, oh my God. The most tense scene is when they are re-entering the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and you get that that radio silence for them for about three minutes. And every time I watch the movie and they re-enter and Lovell says, hello, Houston, it's good to see you again. I always like pump my arms and cheer a little (laughs) bit like, yes. Did you see when uh, they're re-entering the water flying off the dash onto their face? Yeah. At first, I was like, what is that? And I'm like, wow. Because there's all Howard, the condensation. Man, he was down to the wire with this. Like, he went down to every single detail. Mm-hmm. Condensation splashing in their face. And actually, I guess the re-entry. Here's another toxic fandom moment. So it was only four minutes 
in the movie, but in actuality, it was six minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. You can't have two additional minutes of silence <laughs> in a Hollywood film. Dude, what would people, people are going to go to the bathroom, <laughs> and then they're going to miss the best part in the movie. It would be on all the top ten lists of how not to make a film. Oh, thank you, Ron Howard, for so, sparing us. I think we've uh, unpacked enough of our love and appreciation yeah. of Apollo 13. Let's discuss the legacy that this movie has left behind, shall we? Sure. So, this film was a smash hit, to say the least. So, against that $52 million budget, it actually grossed $355 million. Million dollars. And I looked up some of the other highest grossing films of that year. Mm -hmm. So, between the first and fourth spots, there was actually a difference of about $14 million. That's amazing. So that was pretty tight. So yeah. the number one highest grossing film that year was Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> Die Hard in an airport? No, that's Die Hard in New York City. That's Die Hard 2. You always mix up the Die Hard movies for some reason. Wait. That's Die the... Hard 2 is in an airport, that's, yeah. and it's literally called Die Harder. So Vengeance is the one where he's running around with Samuel L. Jackson? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love that one. You got to get your Die Hard movie straight, man. I'm sorry, man. There's, there's too gonna be many. A, there's going to be a quiz later. Don't ask me about Harry <laughs> Potter. I won't know. And then the second highest grossing film after that was Toy Story. Oh, Tom Hanks. Double dip. He made heck money. Yeah. Hella money. And then number three, highest grossing film of 1995 was Apollo 13. Rock on. And then separating that, like only $3 million are separating it from the high, next highest grossing film, which was Goldeneye at oh. 352 million. Hey, and that was the beginning of Sean Bean's uh, death. <laughs> so much death from Sean Bean's career. Film. It was crazy though. Think of a time when your highest grossing films were 350 million compared yeah. to the billions that they go now. And now Disney just looks down at all of them like, hmm, that's peasant gross. You know what? But I feel like the inflation calculator would be good for that. Yeah. It'd probably boasted up a couple hundred million. Maybe. Yeah. But it, uh, Apollo 13 also holds a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so yeah. take that what you will. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think uh, Rotten Tomatoes gets that right. Yeah, they do. They do. Nominated for nine Academy Awards. Uh, best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Visual Effects, Best Original Dramatic Score, so this was before they just made it into one category. Okay. Uh, best Art Direction, which is Best Production Design, Best Supporting Actor, for Ed Harris and Best Supporting Actress for Kathleen Quinlan. Hey. And won two of them, Best Film Editing and Best Sound Mixing. Oh, Rocket. Well, they deserve those. I felt it should have won more, to be honest. Yes. I, I'm surprised it didn't win Best Picture. I think Braveheart beat it out that year for Best Picture. Mel Gibson. <laughs> that's a good film, but that's a long film. And too much Irish or Scottish behind. Oh, you think Apollo 13 taste. gets some things wrong. Braveheart may as well just be an original story because it gets everything wrong. Oh, I guess they weren't going for continuity. No, they year. weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so many things are just factually wrong with Braveheart. It's not even funny. <laughs> um, also, this is probably, I think, Ron Howard's best film and further enhanced Tom Hanks's legendary career. Yeah. And also, not to mention Bill Paxton's, Kevin Bacon's, or Ed Harris's. Oh, yeah. This is all like a great film to put on their resume. Yeah, well, I think this skyrocketed Ed Harris's being taken seriously like as an Oscar. Because I think the next couple of years, he got Truman Show, an Oscar nod, and then he got one for when he was an artist. So, I mean, this really made him into a reputable guy. Oh, yeah. After this, he did uh, films like um, 
The Rock. Oh, yeah. Which is, people say it's uh, Sean Connery's last James Bond film. <laughs> and you did A Beautiful Mind. You did Enemy at the Gates. Oh, my god! A History of Violence. Yeah. You did Gone Baby Gone, which I finally saw awesome recently. Awesome film, dude. Check it out if you haven't seen that. And also did a uh, Western called Appaloosa. So I've seen that. So Ed it's Harris great. has gone on to do great things after this movie. He does. And he gives acting advice online, too. So you can like watch him like tell young actors like how to make it. And it's so... I'm like, you are cool, man. So Ed Harris, we're a fan of you. Yes. You get the force-fed sci-fi stamp of approval. <laughs> and this also inspired the award-winning HBO series From the Earth to the Moon. Hey. Which dramatizes not, not just the Apollo program, but the entire history of NASA. So it uh, talks about uh, Project Mercury, Project Gemini, and uh, Apollo. Have you seen it? I have not. I have not had the time to watch it. Um, no, that sounds pretty meaty. <laughs> I think there's some like 13 episodes. I just haven't had time to watch it. Yeah, my right. Netflix queue is about 60 things long right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think we've about wrapped this buddy up? Yeah, with let's, a bow? let's rate this mission, shall we, Sean? Rate this mission. All right. So, on our force-fed sci-fi uh, rating system of would it watch, would watch, would own, and would host viewing parties, what do you give Apollo 13, Sean? Honestly, I would say uh, gear up, man, because I would actually host a viewing party for this film. My man. Bring your spacesuits and your spaceships and your Corvettes, because it's a viewing party. Bring your Corvettes if you're a highly paid government employee. Yes. (laughs) No, but for real, I would say if you like great space uh, documentary, basically docudramas, this is awesome. It's everything we could ever want. I think this is one of those films that universally appeals to people. Totally. Because it's that fundamental question of how do I get home? Mm-hmm. And it's set during a unique time in American history. Yeah. I mean, it has great and memorable scenes along with some of the best lines in film history. Yeah. People to this day say, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and moreover, I think that actually independent research further enhances the enjoyment of this movie. Yeah. Well, you like think about it. Because people tend to, you know, associate the past, like the 70s, like, oh, they don't have the technology of today. And you think about, like, they literally were in space and they got them back home with the limited tech back then. It's just mind-blowing. Yeah. A great, great day for NASA. Yeah. This is another example of a timeless film. Yeah. I would say so. I, I don't know if it's been preserved or not. No. Not no, yet. Not I, yet. I, I imagine it will be soon. It has to be. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know if there's much more we can say about our love and appreciation for Apollo 13. No, I think we, <laughs> we've worshipped it enough. I think it's time. So, listeners, I'll thank you for allowing us this indulgence. And again, yes. this was for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. So, if you enjoyed today's show, please go to over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForcefedSciFi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. Force Fed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. 
Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.